What a joyous and exciting occasion it is on this first Sunday in October 2006 for Denise and Deanna, Christian, Brooklyn, and I to begin our official work with you here at Pippin. We look forward to being a part of the family here and to be a part of the work that you and I can do together to further expand and, of course, send forth the greatness of God's beautiful and powerful Word. As we think about things like that, again, as has already been mentioned, we've had the opportunity to come to know several of you, and we look forward to deepening that by knowing even more names and becoming a firmer part of the family here. And over time, that, of course, will, will occur with us. To celebrate this day, we also have many visitors who have come our way, and we're so very happy and thankful for your presence. We do want to invite you back at any opportunity that you may have. Also, members of both my family and Denise's family here with us today, and we're so very happy that we all can come to an occasion like this one. As we think about the nature of those matters, this last week as we shared together a gospel meeting over at the Buffalo Valley Congregation, several of you came and were a part of that effort, and to you we're certainly appreciative and thankful and hope we can continue works like that one, as we even in this area, Jackson, Putnam County, help to spread the grandeur of God's Word. In thinking about the nature of the Word of God, today might I ask you to reflect on a lesson that I'll present by way of this screen over to my left. Hopefully in the weeks ahead we can come to make this an interesting and powerful part of the presentation in the lessons and Bible studies. The Christian Standard. Today, would you think with me about the notion of a standard inasmuch as it relates to, for us, a faith-building look at the wonderful, powerful, and majestic Word of God. As we do that, might I ask you in the outset of the lesson to consider this with me. You and I use on a daily basis the concept of a standard. We may not often think about it, but we do. In fact, it's an integral part of much of the things that we deal with almost on a continuous and constant basis. Just as an example, think about the way that a standard is used to help define a basis or a unit. None of us, for example, would say that that line is one inch long. I drew that there for that express reason. We know about how long an inch is, but what's more, there is a standard length of an inch, and it is something that is set, and it's something that we learn to understand. Anything thus that does not meet that standard is not declared to be an inch in length. Wouldn't it be a tragedy, in fact a disaster, if a carpenter, as he went to purchase, say, some two-by-fours, found pieces of wood that had all kinds of dimensions, and yet the person said they're all two-by-fours. Well, we understand each means something. That word is a standard for a measure or unit of length. But notice what else. The word standard can be used in another way. After all, it can define or make known an acceptable level of quality. You and I recognize that at least on city water, there's a standard that that water must meet. There's a water quality standard, and upon checking that water on a periodic basis, if it doesn't meet that standard, a warning is issued. Perhaps it's an issue to boil that water before it's used, or by some means, the standard must be met. Whatever is necessary to make sure that that water meets the standard must in fact be done. One can think about standards in many kinds of ways. There's perhaps a third one that quickly comes to your mind. It's 
also the case that a standard can illustrate or make known an acceptable level of performance. When the age of 15 or 16, as the circumstances allow, is reached, there's a degree of excitement and a gleam in the eye of that young boy or girl who are able to go and obtain a driver's license. To finally legally be able to drive the family car or to obtain one of their own. But have you ever noted that that driver's license exam is a standard in the sense that it intends to set forth a minimum level or standard of both knowledge and skill in relating to the driving of a car? If that standard isn't met, if the person fails that exam, then it must be taken at another time. There's not a legal ability yet to drive an automobile. We are beginning to see that in the notion of a standard, there are a few basic and powerful ideas. May we summarize them this way. A standard is something established as a rule for activity, comparison, or judging. It sets a basis upon which an activity is to be performed and an acceptable level is identified. That being said, we've looked at standards so far today about dimensions of wood and water quality and driver's license exams, but have you noted that there's something common about every one of them? Any standard, if it's to be helpful, beneficial, and useful, must meet these criteria. It must be something that, that is accessible. That is to say, something that people can use and get to. Secondly, it must be enduring. A standard is of little value if it changes one day to the next. Thirdly, a standard must be unchangeable in the sense that it has a lasting quality about it. Finally, it must be something that can be put into practice. I say all of that to say this. Is there a standard in religion? We're not talking about water anymore, nor are we discussing the characteristics of wood or the characteristics of a driving exam. Is there a standard in religion? That is to say, is there a basic benchmark that the God of heaven has presented and all are expected to submit to it and need it for exactness in performance? in judging, even in these other ideas we've mentioned. There are many in our world who would quickly say the answer to that perhaps is no. They think that there is no standard in the sense that there's one for everybody. Many would be quick to say that each person has a capability of identifying his own standard, but he must be sincere and honest in the pursuit of it. Before we accept that, we need to make sure that's true. For after all, in these other cases, that hasn't been the case. The water quality individuals here in Putnam County, or in Jackson County, or wherever they may be, the person in charge is not at liberty to change the state standard and say, well, I think a different standard is acceptable. That standard, if it's not met, results in tremendous penalties and even great danger in regard to the, to the humans who partake of that water. Might we notice then... How about a standard in religion? Let's talk about that for the remainder of our lesson time this morning. As we seek to answer the question, we must quickly note that the answer is an overwhelming yes. There is a standard in religion. Amazingly, powerfully, and beautifully, however, it is not left to each person's individual choice. Let's notice a few facts and features. 
perhaps as your mind has already raced in that direction, the standard is that which you and I perhaps hold right now in our hands, the marvelous, the majestic, beautiful Word of God. This is the standard. And furthermore, as we contemplate that fact, let's make sure that we can understand those passages that teach us that. It has always been true that God's Word is the standard in religion. In the early dawn of time in Genesis 3, we easily recall the fact that their God had given the command to Adam and Eve that they were allowed to partake of any of the fruits of the garden except the tree of the knowledge in the midst of the garden, that one, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. In Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17, God expressly made that note. And it's not easy to misunderstand. He said, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree in the midst of the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. That note alone is something that makes very clear the fact God had something to say and His Word was presented. But one chapter later, in Genesis 3.11, by this point Adam and Eve had partaken of that forbidden fruit and now walking in the garden in the cool of the day, God presented Himself to them. And in verse 11, after making note to God, Adam did that he had hidden himself because he was naked, God said, How didst thou know thou art naked? Hast thou eaten of the fruit of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat? Notice there was a standard to which God referred. It was the standard of that command he had delivered in the previous chapter. I told you not to eat of it. And then God asked Adam about his responsibility to that command. Adam, did you eat of it? At that point, we remember Adam began to make excuse that the woman gave it to me. But that did not set aside the fact God had a standard. It was His Word. What about in the Mosaic Age, centuries later? In Deuteronomy 8, verse 1, noting that God had given that precious law to Moses on Mount Sinai, who in turn has shared it with the people of Israel? Notice that the statement is made, All that I command thee this day thou shalt keep. Those commandments, those ordinances, and those judgments that God had specified through Moses, he expected Israel to keep, and that was the standard. How often in the Old Testament are statements like that one found? In Jeremiah 1 verse 9, that bold prophet, notice God told him expressly, Jeremiah, I have put my words in your mouth. What was it that Jeremiah was supposed to speak? Was it his own thoughts or his own perspectives or opinions? Of course not. Jeremiah, you have authority to preach my word. You go speak with it to Israel. God's word was standard. It was the thing by which Israel was to be judged. Furthermore, in Jeremiah 23 verse 29, just a few chapters later, notice the, imp the impressive place there held by the word of God. Is not my word like as a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh a rock in pieces? God's word is much like an anvil. Many things might be laid aside it, cast upon it, but the anvil will utterly crush and destroy all those things that fail to meet up to its preciousness and its standard of judgment. It's amazing to consider how that even in all these ages of time, 2 Chronicles 36.16 drives the point home so wonderfully, doesn't it? 
when the time came that Israel, Judah that is, was taken into captivity, why were they taken into captivity? This verse tells us it's because they had mocked the messengers of God, they had despised his words, and they had misused his prophets. You mean they had despised the standard, they had despised his word, and for that they were punished? Absolutely. That's what the inspired writer told us. You cannot ignore the standard. It is the basis upon which all judgments are made, and that basis that leads to acceptability. As we begin to think about that, we have but one era left to consider. God's word was the standard in the Mosaic age, just as it had been in the patriarchal age. What about today? His word is still the standard. In John 12, 48, Jesus in bold language said, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. What is it then that judges God's word? What is it then that serves as that that will condemn those that fail to meet it, but it will also be there to state the acceptability of those that do? It's God's word. Many times in the New Testament, God's wonderful word is described in language not unlike that. In Deuteronomy 18, verse 19, even the Old Testament prophesied of the nature of God's word in the Christian age. On that occasion, Moses made the statement that the God of heaven shall raise up a prophet like unto me, and whatsoever he commands, that men must obey. When Peter quoted that in Acts chapter 3, he applied it directly to Jesus, and you and I today then are the recipients of that wonderful standard. Perhaps finally, in 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 through 9, on that marvelous and powerful day of judgment, notice the statement made about those that do not obey the gospel. He says, To you that are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Those who do not obey the gospel, that is, don't meet the standard, are the ones susceptible then to the eternal punishment of a devil's hell. It is an impressive consideration, isn't it? We have a standard today, and there's no mistaking what it is. This standard, furthermore, is complete. There's no missing elements. There's no parts that are absent. Isn't it amazing that in 2 Peter 1 verse 3, Peter declared, According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. This standard has all the characteristics it needs. It's complete. Furthermore, it's authoritative. Didn't Paul write to Timothy and say, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be what? Perfect, complete, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. Those passages help us appreciate we don't hold just any ordinary book. This is the standard. It is the pattern by which my life and yours must be based, otherwise we'll be found lacking in the eyes of the wonderful God of heaven. But all that being said, Perhaps one could ask, what about the other characteristics of this standard? Does it meet all four of those issues that we raised earlier? Is it accessible? Is it unchangeable? Is it enduring? Is it practical? Well, it would be worth our 
good work for the next few moments to look at the answers to each of those questions. What about the accessibility of the Word of God? At this point, what about an example? Isn't it interesting that earlier we mentioned about taking a driver's license test in order to meet that standard of being able to drive a car? You and I noticed, though, that it's pretty easy to go to the Putnam County place and take that test. But have you ever noted, what if the test were given in only one place and say it was Washington, D.C.? It would not only be inconvenient, it would be inaccessible for many people. How often or how many would be able to take a journey to Washington just to take a driver's license test? Thankfully, the Word of God isn't inaccessible like that. It's accessible. It is something we have at our access and our disposal. Notice some of the passages that lead us in that direction. God has a powerful and impressive desire that all men will be saved. He wrote to Timothy, Paul did in 1 Timothy 2 verse 4, who would have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. It's not God's desire that the word be hidden, placed inside boxes and men aren't allowed to hold it and read it and study it. God's word's given to us to be accessible. One of the greatest tragedies of the Middle Ages that you and I learn as we study history is that the word of God was taken by men from men. Those that were the supposed clergy took what was the word of God and wouldn't allow people to have easy access to it. That's what led in part to the dark ages. The beautiful light of God's word was, did not shine as brightly. But today, how blessed we are. We have this in such an accessible way. Not only does God desire that all men come to a knowledge of that truth and that by that they would be saved, that Christian law is thus for every one of us. Me and you all are subject to this same law of God. Isn't it amazing to notice how that was even prophesied in Isaiah 2, verses 2 and 3? The simple fact there Isaiah prophesied was this. The mountain of the Lord's house would be established in the top of the mountains, a statement referring to the church. The law would go forth from Jerusalem and all nations would flow unto it. Let us emphasize the word all. God has a law for all nations. and It's the same law. Here in America whether it be in India, Australia, whether it be Canada or somewhere in Europe, God's law is still the standard even there. In fact, didn't Paul write to Titus and say in Titus 2.11 that the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to who? All men. The grace of God that makes available salvation hath appeared to all men. It's accessible. And what a grand blessing that in fact is. On the second missionary journey, when Paul found himself in the city of Athens, in Acts 17, verses 30 and 31, a statement is made about that accessibility and the fact that all are subject to it when Paul there stated, The times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day into which he would judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he's raised him from the dead. God's assurance concerning the standard made known and available to all men. That first criterion then is thus easily satisfied by the word of God. What about the second one? 
Let's consider that one as well. The enduring quality of God's Word. Perhaps our mind races as we think about the wonderful nature of that character. Notice again, a standard would not be much of a standard if it wasn't enduring. That is to say, if it had a very short lifespan or if it did not last long. Notice God's Word in Isaiah 40 verse 8. Centuries ago the prophet said, The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the Word of the Lord shall stand forever. Forever? That's what he said. The Word of the Lord shall stand forever. Peter quoted that very carefully in 1 Peter 1.25, and he said there, The Word of the Lord endureth forever. And there's the actual word endure. God's Word shall stand, and how beautifully that occurs. It'll be just as needful for my children and for yours, for my grandchildren and yours, and yea, 20 generations from now. If this world stands, it will still be as needful. You see, that old Jerusalem gospel is needed by every age. It is such that as we consider today the impressive need for it, no wonder that's so strong. It is enduring. Along that same line, you'll notice with me in Matthew 24, 35, our blessed Savior, not long before He was crucified, had this tremendous statement. He said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. That which you and I speak may not last long. The winds of time may do away with it, and it may become obsolete in just a very short time, but that isn't true of what God said. It'll endure forever. When you and I then open the pages of this book and study it and implant it into our heart and life, we are engaging in an activity whereby we are seeking the standard and striving to find ourselves in compliance with it. Isn't that wonderful? This standard is not going to be different tomorrow than it is today. So much so that that's directly stated in that next point. Notice the testimony of Scripture to this very fact. We've noted some texts. What about experience itself? There's one example in Jeremiah 36 that seems so interesting. You might remember it well. The king on the throne of Judah at that time was named Jehoiakim. You might remember that he wasn't the godliest of kings. In fact, as Jeremiah delivered the word of the Lord to the people, Baruch wrote that down and actually brought it and read it in the ears of Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim did not like what he heard. In fact, he was so upset by it that he took his penknife and ripped it shreds and cast it into the fire. Do you suppose that Jehoiakim thought that by tearing up God's word that he was no longer subject to it? Do you suppose that he thought that by destroying that paper copy that he was no longer amenable or in need of obeying it? He was certainly to be found in error if that's what he thought because in the very next chapter, God commissioned Jeremiah to write the same things he had just written and furthermore, Jehoiakim found himself subject to the same thing he may have thought he destroyed. You see, God's word endures. There have been men who through the ages have thought that they were stronger than God's word and they've thought they could destroy it, but every time they've been found in error. For those men are now long dead, but God's word is still alive and well. God's word's enduring. Furthermore, it's unchangeable. Notice some facts concerning that one too. 
Inasmuch as God's word is not changeable, that makes it a powerful standard. For after all, if you and I were able to change it to whatever we liked, or if men anywhere could change the word and make it say what they want, well, it really then isn't much of a standard at all. You can basically do what you want. But God's word can't be changed. In Deuteronomy 4, verse 2, in ages now long past, the marvelous record by Moses to Israel was this. Ye shall not add unto the words that I give unto you, neither shall ye diminish aught therefrom, that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God. Notice they could not add anything to it. They could not take anything from it. That means it's unchangeable. Men are not given the liberty of adjusting it, altering it, tampering with it, or changing it in any fashion. Eight chapters later, in fact, in words that are somewhat even stronger, Moses reiterated the same thing in Deuteronomy 12, verse 32. Nothing to be about that word is to be changed. We've seen then that that concerned the old law of Moses. What about the Christian law, the New Testament? Are we at liberty to change it? Of course, the answer is again a resounding no. Didn't Paul ask in Romans 4 verse 3, What saith the Scripture? Paul wasn't interested in what men may think, what others may suppose. He was interested in what God said, what the standard had to say. One last time on the last page of the Bible. The last paragraph in Holy Writ, God one final time through the Apostle John urged us to never forget the fact that God's word can't be changed. Concerning the words of the prophecy of this book in Revelation 22:18 and 19, we see on that occasion that God through John said, Those that would add to this book shall have added to them the plagues written therein. But on the other hand, to those who would remove or detract, take things away, then from the book of life, their name shall be taken away. Now, true enough, John may directly have referred to the book of Revelation, but the premise is found in all 27 New Testament books. God's word's not changeable. It is fixed and absolute, and we should be eternally grateful for that fact. The fact that it isn't changeable then gives us great confidence and courage that we not only today but tomorrow can pattern our life thereby and be found pleasing, wholesome, acceptable, and right in the sight of God. Consider some other examples of the testimony of Acts 5 to that very same point. In verse 37 of that noble chapter, there Gamaliel speaking made this statement, If this thing be of God, we cannot defeat it. But if it be not of God, then it will pass away of its own. That's a paraphrase of what Gamaliel said, but isn't the logic so strong? For you see, God's word's enduring and it is unchangeable. It's a blessing then to have it, to study it, to read it. We have, though, one other criterion that we need to consider. It was the one related to its practicality. Can the Bible be put into practice? That is to say, can we implement it? Can we not, with a smile on our face, answer yes? God gave us a book. First of all, it's understandable. Would it not be a tragedy of eternal proportion if he gave us a book that we could not understand and then hold us accountable for what it said? Well, first of all, that'd be unfair. God is not unfair. 
In fact, the judge of the earth will always do what's right. Genesis 18, verse 25. Thus, he gave us a word that we can't understand. Recall what was stated to Habakkuk in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse, verse number 2. In the ages long past, though that's one of those minor prophet books, remember that God said to Habakkuk, Write the vision, make it plain, so that those who read it may run. Habakkuk was to make it so plain that those who would read it would easily appreciate the message and immediately proceed into action based on that word. It was to be implemented. Notice furthermore in Ephesians 3 verse 4, the Apostle Paul as he wrote to the Ephesian brethren said, When you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. In other words, the Ephesians were to understand. You and I today are to understand. The gospel is not given to us in words and language and signs that's impossible to figure out. Rather, it's given to us in the clarity and the plainness with which God intended it. As we plumb the depths of it, we come to greater faith and knowledge and greater love and assurance of the nature of God and His goodness. Not only, though, is it understandable, God meant for us to do it. He meant for us to put it into practice. In fact, one of the stories that we teach our children, in fact, we impress it upon their mind, but we as older ones and adults mustn't forget it either. What is it Jesus taught about a foolish man and a wise man in Matthew 7, beginning in verse 24? We sing a song in which the wise man built his house on the rock, but the foolish man built his on the sand. And that's a beautiful story and has a great lesson from many perspectives. But what was the principal thought the Lord was teaching? Who was the wise man? He's that one which not only heard but did the word of God. Who was the foolish man? He was the one who heard but did not do. Point is, he was called foolish because his house was built on a weak and shoddy foundation. He wasn't prepared for the matters of life and he certainly wasn't prepared for eternity. God meant for his word to be done to be put into practice. Beginning in Romans 12, the opening verse to that chapter, as Paul wrote to the brethren in Rome, he said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Did you notice the number of words in those two verses that involve action, service, things to be accomplished? God's Word is to be done and put into practice. It's a blessing when you and I feel the graciousness of God toward us when we put it into practice. For after all, that leads to a happiness in this life and certainly an excitement as it relates to heaven. At this point in our lesson today, we've then established the fact that the Bible, God's Word, is the standard, and of that there's no question. And we've also noted four criteria that it meets. Perhaps in terms of a brief summary, could we not then say, this must be ranked as one of the grandest blessings of all time. Consider, in fact, the statement that was made during our reading this morning. Man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. 
On that occasion, our Lord was being tempted to turn stones into bread. And yet, in answer to that, the Lord quoted from the book of Deuteronomy and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. We ought not place too much emphasis and focus on anything other than that standard. For that's the one by which we'll be judged. It's the one that sets the direction happily and acceptably through life. No wonder then Jeremiah cried in Jeremiah twenty two twenty nine, O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. With these facts stated, let us conclude our lesson today. In conclusion, we can review that definition we noted for a standard. It is simply something that acts as a rule for activity, for performance, or for quality. We have learned so powerfully that in religion, God's Word is the standard. Simply put, period at the end of that sentence. There is no other standard anywhere despite what men may say. Furthermore, God's Word meets every criterion you would expect a standard to have. It's accessible. It's durable. That is to say, it endures. It is also unchangeable. And finally, it can be put into practice, implemented, even at once. All of that leads us to say that we must then follow that standard if we are to be pleasing to God. And thus the personal question, have you followed it? Have I followed it to this point? Jesus shed his blood at Calvary, a part of that beautiful standard of the Word of God, but he makes it known that we must obey that if we are to have eternal life. Have you become a Christian today? Have you allowed the blood of Jesus to wash your sins away in the act of baptism? Realize that you need to hear the word of the Lord and that you have done this morning. Believe it to be true. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God, precisely who the Scriptures say that He was. Repent then of those sins in your life, desiring earnestly to commit them no more. At that point, in a public way, we would aid you in taking your confession about the deity of Jesus and also assist you in being immersed, buried in water for the forgiveness of your sins. If we could help you do that today, this would be a beautiful, powerful, in fact, no better day could there ever be. But if you have done that but have not been true to the standard, you've started following a different standard. Well, realize there is no other, for no other foundation can any man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus, 1 Corinthians 3.11. If we could aid you in coming back to your first love, let us do that too. We would do that by prayer, Acts 8, verse 20 praying that those sins that have separated you from God would be taken away and He would welcome you back home faithfully to the family of God. If either of those things is the need of your life today, let us know that even now while together we stand and while we sing.